Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all you guys. Um, this is your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team here and just grateful you decided to spend a por- portion of your Sunday uh, here with us. Um, we hope and pray that this will be a place that you can call home. Um, if not, we'd love to help you find a place because we believe everyone deserves to have a church home and grow in their faith and grow in community uh, together. And there are a lot of great churches um, in this area. Are we biased? Sure. Uh, but um, we'd love to help you connect with one and, and really do hope that it's here um, with us. We're in this series called Something is Happening where we've been on this journey looking through the book of Acts and uh, we'll continue to do so for the next couple of weeks. Um, and then we'll go into a series called For the Culture, um, um, which is kind of centered around like, hey, there's some other things you want to get embedded into us. And then uh, starting at the end of August, we're going to do probably 10 to 12 weeks in the book of Revelation. And so um, that'll be super easy and not a big deal. So we'll, we'll work on that. But uh, um, really excited um, about that. And, uh, and so we've been in this journey on something that's happening, really centered around how, how do revivals happen? Like big movements of God. And, and God's always moving, right? Um, but what are, the, what are the things that kind of coincide with one another? and cross over in these big movements, and where do we see them? Because historically, there's been, every so often, there are these big awakenings or big revival movements that happen, and there are some threads that actually get woven in together, and, and we see it actually in the start of the church and, and Acts, that there are just some commonalities in all of these things, and, and again, God's always moving. It isn't just in you know, certain times, but there are certain moments where bigger things that just happen. And, uh, and we've talked about a lot of those different ones historically, and, and, and we're in one actually right now. Like there, there are things happening right now uh, globally, but also within our own country that are very specific kind of revival moments that are happening. And, and here's the thing, you can miss it. You can. Um, there was a big, you know, big revival moment uh, uh, during the, the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement, right? Uh, guess what? People missed it. Uh, in, in the book of Acts that we've been reading through, uh, all these miracles, all these signs and wonders, all these huge things that were happening, and, and guess what? People missed it. And so uh, you could miss it, and I could miss it if we're not careful, and if we're not aware of some of the things that are um, happening uh, around us. And so uh, in this series, just a quick little catch up. Here's what we actually talked about is that the spirit moves, right? And this is where it all starts. That the spirit of God begins to move. And then there are a lot of things that transpire off of this, right? So we talked about uh, we become a witness, a witness in all part of our lives, that there are uh, not just how we uh, uh, talk about it, but there's in our actions, that there's something, there's this, there's this the way that we live is, is very significant, and it's, it's witness to the things of Jesus, witness to what Jesus taught. Um, Nicole talked about confession, right? That we become people of great confession and repentance, that we're turning away from the things of this world. Um, one of the reasons that we start every service and then have, at the end of each sermon, we have just moments of confession and repentance to engage the, the presence uh, of God. Um, Shaq talked about boldness, right? If you guys were here for that. Um, talked a lot about boldness and, and what that could mean for our lives and, and that there's a, a courageous way that we begin to live our life and we're not timid. Um, we also talked about um, having... A, the imagination 
Man, my handwriting is getting worse as I move along. Um, but uh, didn't start off great. But uh, our imagination, we don't lose our imagination in, in, in the midst of this. And then last week, I'm, I'm running out of space. We'll do this. Uh, last week, we talked about the goodness of God. One really cool thing that when we're talking about the goodness of God and, and that we're celebrating a lot of different things, right? And so for those of you that are here, we're, we're celebrating some of the things that are even happening in our church and the story of our church and celebrating the goodness of God and how he's shown up and, and even the goodness of God, how we uh, were able to purchase this building and we'll close on it in August at some point. And we talked a lot about that and, and, and the beauty of what could happen uh, out of that. But the the thing that stuck with me the most from last week was uh, talking about the goodness of God. And I looked out, and it was in, in the second service, and I just saw uh, like four or five men just like weeping. And I was like, oh, that's good. That's really good. And, uh, and, and, and there's this like kind of really cool moment. And, and there were um, men that, uh, a couple of them I knew, and the other two I actually didn't know. But uh, there were two of them that I did know. I was like, oh, I never would have expected it. But there was something about the goodness of God that was striking at their heart. And, and began to unearth something inside of them. And so, and when the spirit begins to move, some of these things are coming out of us. And, and, and with that, we experience the presence of God in a deeper way. And, and listen, not just personally, it's that, that's that commitment and that consistent engagement with the presence of God that it starts with, it starts with a person but brings out kind of in the communal element. And that's what we're trying to push ourselves towards and understand that these things are all woven in together. That when you see these big movements of God, these things are always there. And we're gonna build on that uh, here today. I was thinking about this. Have you guys ever... Um, gotten to a point of age where you thought to yourself, huh, I can't believe how old they are now. Have you ever thought that? Uh, you might have, like, when you were younger, you hated, right, when someone that was older came up to you and you was like, I remember when you were this big, right? Like that whole thing, right? And then you all of a sudden hit like 35 and you start doing that to people randomly. But uh, this past week I was reflecting on how quick life can go by. Like how fast. I, for me, it started in college. When I graduated, I remember playing my last baseball game in college. We were down uh, at the University of Florida. And I remember when it was over, I was like, this just flew by. In the moment, it didn't feel like it, but I was like, this just flew by. And all of a sudden, it was like, now I'm into this whole other phase of life. And, and I felt like, and I was only 21 at the time. But it just felt like all of a sudden life was moving really quickly. Uh, I feel like that's what it was for me in college. How many guys hit that point around that time, right? You start saying like, man, things are moving really quickly. All of a sudden, you, like, I was reflecting on how Lacey and I just celebrated our 22nd uh, anniversary uh, in, in the beginning of June. Um, yeah. yeah. Wasn't, I wasn't doing it for that, but she's great. Um, but uh, we celebrated our 22nd anniversary and... I was looking at a picture of us when we first got married, and I was like, man, I'm the same age as my father-in-law was when we got married. And I was like, dang, man, that just happens like so fast. Uh, I was walking up to the stage, and I saw Madeline Miller back there, who's Joe and Laura's uh, daughter. And I was like, she was nine when we started, eight or nine when we started this church. And I'm like, she's a sophomore. You were in South Carolina. I'm like, what is going on, right? Like, life just goes by so fast, so fast. And I, when Lacey and I were talking about this week, this phrase, uh, she mentioned part of this phrase and, and I kind of added to it, but she mentioned this word urgency. And 
a common thread woven into every movement of God is there's an urgency to it. The people in it, there's an urgency to how you live. Not an urgency to get what you need to get. It's an urgency to see people come from death to life. The way you begin to see people around you, the way you begin to take in their stories, there's this urgency to your life. It, it, your perspective starts to dramatically shift and change. And, and the word that I actually added to it was this, compassionate urgency. Compassionate urgency. And the reason why that's there is because if you just have this urgency about you to want to share your faith, uh, sometimes it can, you can make it all about, I just need you to get to say yes, yes to Jesus. And that's it. And you see people as a project. When you have a compassionate urgency to the way you leave, live, uh, you, you begin to see people the way God actually sees them. And you start appreciating the process. You start seeing things uh, a little more holistically. Uh, you don't, uh, you're not as fearful because your perspective begins to, to change. And I was thinking about this story that I read recently. Um, it's actually about this woman here. Um, they can't show her face because if they showed her face, she would uh, face deep persecution and, and everything. But this woman... Uh, they call her uh, Hey Wu, but that's not her real name. But she is from originally from North uh, North Carolina, North Korea, very different places. Uh, North North Korea, and she became a believer. Her and her family, and uh, in North Korea at that time. Uh, was heavily persecuted Christians. I'm still due to this day, but uh, even more so at this point in time. And she faced heavy persecution. So her and her husband and kids uh, went to China. Um, they, were, they were found out in China. And so China then deported them back to North Korea. And originally what ended up happening was her husband was imprisoned. And he was sent into like just awful, I won't get into the details of what the prison was like, but the level of beating and things that they went through is just... Horrific. Whatever you're picture, picturing in your mind, it's worse. And uh, I'm reading this story. Uh, well, originally I heard the story, but I was reading more about it uh, this week. And she said this about her husband that just kind of like made me stop in my tracks as she was talking. She says, even in the midst of these horrible tortures, he just had compassion for those who did not know about Jesus Christ. He went into the prison walking, but after all the torture, he was dragged loose on the ground. Even in this situation, although his body was all torn apart, he handed the last pieces of his rotten corn uh, that he had to his prison mates. He spread the gospel to the inmates. He prayed for the sick. And as he continued the good work, God built an underground church in the prison through my husband. And I'm reading that story, and I'm just like, oh, man. Like, when we think about movements of God, and we think about the awakenings for people in, in hard situations and, and everything, and it's like, that kind of compassionate urgency to be able to see the worst of the worst in front of you and experience it, but to have the perspective to say, yeah, but these people need to know Jesus and I would do anything for it. What's fascinating about her story is that's not where it ended. Uh, a few years later, she gets arrested, imprisoned, and she uh, has the same experience, uh, severely beaten and everything, and she's in the prison, and she's in this moment where it's so bad that the only place that uh, you, could either, you could get away from the guards was around the toilet, because that area was so just horrific and smell and everything that the guards wouldn't even go there. And so after being in there for a few years, in having this time of prayer, she would always pray while everyone else was sleeping because she figured that was the safest time to do so. 
So she was literally not like sleeping very much at all. And, and she would, when everyone else was like, would be like lights out, she would then start her prayer time. And in that time, she had this, uh, felt like God was just in her spirit, just growing her affinity and love for all the other prison mates. As uh, the North Korean folks are trying to indoctrinate them with all these other things, she is holding strong to her faith. Well, what ends up happening is she's, she feels like, well, just like my husband, I feel like God wants me to start a church in here. And she just began to pray that God would lead her into uh, seeing the right people. And one by one, uh, these people started having these conversations with her and she would share her faith and they would come to believe in Jesus. And what they would do is, they, would for, they, they figured they had roughly about 10 to 12 minutes around the toilet before a guard would like try and knock on the door or, or uh, come in. And so every day, they would gather around this toilet and um, they, would, they would recite whatever scripture they had memorized because they couldn't you know, get access to a Bible. And quite often, uh, every day they would, they would quote Psalm 23. And then they would whisper they would whisper the verses together and then, uh, then someone would lead them in a couple of hymns and they would just sing it. And the one that they sang all the time was Amazing Grace. And they would, they would just gather around and they would be like, they would start singing Amazing Grace together like as quietly as they could. Obviously it's just acapella, no music. And, and then um, they would sing other hymns, you know, hymns like um, Blessed Assurance, you know, Jesus is Mine. And sing these, sing these hymns that were um, speaking into their souls. And it allowed them to get through. She eventually gets out of prison, but she saw person after person come to know the reality and the truth of Jesus. And you hear a story like that, and you're like, man, what would I do? Like, it's technically really easy for us to share our faith. We, we can walk out wherever we want to tomorrow, today, and, and we can. The, the, the worst thing we might face is someone yelling something at us. Maybe, maybe, or ignoring us. And I just started thinking like, in every movement, there's a compassionate urgency to see people come from life to death. I mean, from death to life. There's a compassionate urgency for people to know the reality and the truth of Jesus. There's a compassionate urgency to begin to see the world around you, see, see your city in a way that God sees the city. I mean, some of you guys know the story of when Jesus, uh, he comes up to Jerusalem as he's about to die and he looks over Jerusalem and he just begins to, to what? Does anyone know? Weep. Weep. Why does he weep? His heart is so burdened for the people. His heart is just so burdened for people that he, he weeps. And, and, and you might say, well, I'm not a crier. There's a reason for that, honestly. Um, I wasn't a crier e either um, for a large portion of my life uh, until I held Max and Nevaeh. And I was like, oh, what is this emotion? coming out of me, right? And then and Ruby the same way, just like couldn't hold tears back. But it wasn't just that. It was, man, God started like chipping away at things in me. And, and then, you know, uh, sometimes now I'm like shocked at how much I cry. And uh, like it happens a lot during services and, and then, um, you know, and during prayer times. And I remember uh, a few weeks ago, um, now probably maybe a month and a half ago, even like with the band, like we just had a super sweet moment and I was just talking about our posture 
as we're like leading people and and the tears that were there. Or uh, if you were here for an, the, our all-in night, which is our worship nights um, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, or a few weeks ago, and I couldn't keep it together. I was a, I was a mess. And, uh, and, but I'm looking out to everyone that was here, and like there were just tears everywhere. And then I'm looking at the band, and everyone in the band is crying. I was like, no one's being helpful to like bring this together, you know? And, like, and, and everyone's just feeling the emotion of uh, the moment. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, man, th- there's an urgency, a compassionate urgency that we need to have that is going to come out at times in tears. And because you're going you're gonna to weep over the reality of people not knowing Jesus. That should be embedded in us. And, and I was just thinking about how, man, do, do we do that? Is that part of who we are? Because in every, every big movement that is layered in, that heart for people to come and to know Jesus. Now, some of you in this room are like, I cry at everything, so I'm good. I'm not talking about that kind of cry where it's like a Hallmark commercial comes on and you're like, oh I'm not talking about that. I'm saying the kind of crying, the kind of emotion that is like this deep longing. It's like in the depth of your soul to, to just, you, you just feel it at a core level. There, there's no other way to explain it. It's not, it's almost like there's a difference in the tears. It's like, it's, it's embedded inside of the core of you to just, the urgency, like, man, I want people to know the reality and the hope and the fullness of Jesus. And, and when they don't, that there's something in us that drives us in this direction of wanting to, to have that, the compassionate urgency that Jesus had for everyone else, that his followers had for everyone else around them. Well, a guy in scripture that models that maybe better than anybody else besides Jesus is actually someone who I think is easily forgotten. He's rarely talked about, and we encounter him in the book of Acts, and his name is Stephen. And, and Stephen, it's got a short little window in the Bible, but the language that they use for Stephen is the way they describe him, the way the writer Luke describes him is the exact language that was used for Jesus. He was so Christ-like in the way that he saw the world and the way he was and who he's a witness to. And the Spirit of God was moving in such a powerful way that the only way to, was to describe Stephen was the characteristics used to describe Jesus. Isn't that nuts? Can you imagine if they describe, someone's describing you and like the only words I can come up with were the words that people used to describe Jesus. And that's what we get to see in Stephen. So watch this. Next, chapter six, verse five. It says, the proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose, here he is, Stephen, a man full of what? And what? That's pretty good, right? Be described that way. It's not the last way he's described. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's what? And what? Performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freemen, and Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as in the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the what? Hmm, and the what? Gave him as he spoke, that there was something laced into his words. You see, uh, when Stephen began to speak about the reality and the truth of Jesus and these signs and wonders were happening, 
we have cancel culture now, right? And social media stuff. That's not a new concept. Like this happened all the time, even back then. And one of the easiest things you could do is like, blasphemy. People would scream, blasphemy. If you've watched The Chosen or any like biblical movie, you'd probably see like a Pharisee do something like that. And the way that they would do that was if you could yell blasphemy towards someone and, and maybe even prove a little bit of it, like you would cancel that person. Eventually imprison them or, or they'd get put to death. And so these people are trying to argue against Stephen and, and everything. And, and they're butting up against the reality of his wisdom and their truth. And like, man, everything that we say just falls flat in the same way it did when Jesus there. Why? Because the wisdom he was receiving from the Spirit of God Verse 15 of, six, of chapter 6 says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like what? Hmm. You ever been around someone where something just exudes out of them? And I get it. Sometimes you'd be like, oh, they look angelic. And, and maybe you've said that, and it's been based on a look. But they're looking at him intently in the midst of arguing, of conflict, of hatred. And they're looking at him and they're like, ah, oh, dang man, he looks like an angel. <laughs> that there's something coming out of him that's angelic, that's holy, that's attached to the spirit of God, that, that in the midst of utter chaos, the only thing they could say about him and the way that was coming out of him was like, Something like, an, it's like angelic coming out of How many guys in the midst of your greatest conflict with someone else or chaos with someone else, they looked at you and be like, you know what? I don't love you right now, but man, you, you're an angel, <laughs> right? So just think about that, like that reality. People are yelling blasphemy, wanting to kill him wanting to throw him in prison, wanting to beat him, wanting to get him away as possible. But at the same time, like, I don't know, man, there's just something about this Stephen, something angelic. It doesn't end there. Acts 7, 1 and 2. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Like, that what people are saying. And Stephen replies, like, brothers and, uh, brothers and fathers, he's like, listen to me. There's this boldness to what he's doing. In the, in the midst of people coming at him, he's like, just listen to me for a second. And he begins to tell all the story of the people of Israel, and he gets pretty aggressive in his language, and he's standing up with great courage and great boldness, and he continues on. At one point, he kind of gets to the end of the story of mapping out the whole history of Israel and what God has promised and everything else, and he turns to these people, and these are religious people. And sometimes I think, you know, we can get really hard on some of the Pharisees and, and Sadducees and religious people in the Bible because we're like, oh, how did they not see this? Or how did that? You do realize we have all missed God moving, right? We've all missed things God wanted us to see. And so just breathe a little bit for these guys. But, but Stephen is like, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He has this grace and truth about him. He's 100% grace and 100% truth. And, and he's got this grace and truth about him that steps forward with this courage and this boldness. And he's saying, you guys, you know the reason you don't see it? It's because you're just resisting the Holy Spirit. 
The reason why you and I miss it is when we resist the Holy Spirit. When we're not being open-handed to be like, actually, I, I want, Spirit, I want you to move in such a way that I, I'll, I'll do whatever. I want to see the way you want me to see. And we can miss it. Well, he continues on, and towards the end of the chapter, it says this about him. When the members of Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of what? Looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Every other scripture says Jesus sitting. This one says he's standing. You know why someone's standing? Because he's standing and looking in approval of what he's doing. It's like I'm standing up in honor of what you're doing. Look, he said. This is Stephen speaking. He's getting beaten. He's literally getting beaten to death. Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out to the city and began to stone him. God-fearing people covering their ears and yelling to not wanting to hear the truth of what the Spirit is actually saying. Look around us right now. A large part, not all, a large part of Christian culture is supposedly God-fearing people covering their ears and yelling because they don't want to hear the truth about what the Spirit of God is actually saying. And so they miss it. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named who? I want you to stow that away for just a second. That, that person's name is going to be very important. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, and what did he do? Something embedded in him. That even in the midst of the worst of the worst, that he cries out, that there's this emotion, this crying out to the, to the reality of what he's seeing. And he doesn't cry out, God judge them, God smite them, God save me. What does he say? Do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said the same thing essentially up on the cross. Full of wisdom, full of the truth of the spirit, full of the reality of what they're seeing before them. And what Stephen is seeing in the moment is people that are resisting the spirit and his heart is crying out and being like, God, don't judge them. May they experience the reality of your spirit to come and know you. Come on. We have a hard time, and I'll put myself in this too. We have a hard time sharing our faith even when it's like right in front of us and it's easy. Like sometimes like, I don't know, I don't want to offend them. Ah. I don't know if I want to, should I talk about like my faith at all here? I don't know, what if, what, if, what if it's offensive to them? I don't know. And it's like, there'll be this compassionate urgency to the way we live when the Spirit of God is moving in such a powerful way that we'll know when it's time to be courageous. We'll know when it's time to be bold. We'll know when it's time to speak the truth. We'll know when it's time to engage. Why? Because we have the wisdom of the Spirit of God moving inside of us. It's like Stephen had it, and even in this moment, he's like, I have such compassion. I'm going to cry out 
that God, you would forgive them so that they would experience the reality and the truth of your grace and come from death to life. Now, when I was thinking about this compassionate urgency, there were two things that came to mind, and I'm gonna work through these quickly. But the one thing about Stephen was he was non-anxious. Non-anxious. There was a non-anxious presence about his being that uh, I'm not... So don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that like, if you experience anxiety in your life that you're somehow not following Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there was a non-anxious way that he engaged the world around him. For him to be able to be, be beaten and facing all of that and facing all of the people coming at him all the time and having the wherewithal to have wisdom, to breathe, to have perspective, to like to center himself on the reality and the truth of Jesus and for people to be like, ooh, you look like an angel. But there's something that he brought a non-anxious presence to him. You know, it's fascinating when you look at the teachings of Jesus and you watch how he led, he was a non-anxious presence all the time. And honestly, that was like offensive to people. He was so non-anxious. He was able to kind of ride the waves of everything. And it's like, he didn't get too high, he didn't get too low, but he did celebrate and he did mourn and grieve and, and all those things. But in the midst of this, he just had this perspective to be able to maneuver his way throughout the society around him in this non-anxious presence. And here's the thing. When you're around non-anxious leaders or the non-anxious presence of other friends or whatever, aren't you drawn to it? Because there's just something there. You're just like, ah, this feels okay. I'm going to be Okay. I, I want that for my life. And, and we see that reality in the way Jesus was. And, and we see this in Stephen. Because when we get to that place and when we understand that, we don't operate out of fear. We don't sit there and be like, oh man, the world's falling apart. This is the worst. And, and, and gosh, all we need is if we just vote for this person, then everything will be okay. It's like, no, we, we, we pause for a second and we're like, we're going to be okay. You know why? Because God promised we would. We're going to be okay because we know the reality of eternally what God said would happen. We're going to be okay because I'm going to trust that what Jesus taught actually works. What Jesus taught is the truth. What Jesus taught is real and is hope-filled. And so I'm going to live my life in that way. And when you do, you have a non-anxious presence around you. There's a quote uh, from a book I read uh, a few years ago uh, from this guy who, who was an atheist communist turned uh, Christian in the 1940s. And he said this, his name was Douglas Hyde. He said, coming straight as it were from one world to another, meaning atheism to Christianity, it astounded me that there should be people with such numbers at their disposal and with the truth on their side going around weighed down by the thought that there was a small beleaguered minority carrying some sort of uh, impossible fight against a big majority. The very concept was wrong and psychologically it was calamitous. He's like, how in the world can Christians walk around with the truth on their side and the power of the spirit of God inside of them and walk around fearful as if somehow evil's going to win? It doesn't even make logical sense. It's like it was crazy to him. And when we get to this non-anxious presence and what ends up happening is we start appreciating people's stories. We start becoming far less judgmental of people. We start wanting to be along the journey every step of the way. But they're not right where I want them to be. Okay, but just stick with it. 
Like be with them in the process and we start seeing people the way Jesus saw people. Like think about this. We will never be perfect in sharing our faith. We will never be perfect in seeing people that we know come to the reality of Jesus, right? It's just, we just won't be. Jesus had Judas, okay? He had his 12 followers and even Judas didn't fully get there. But man, his compassion, even towards Judas, his compassion all the time, there's this urgency the way he lived, but this compassion alongside of it that led him to this non-judgmental presence and non-anxious presence that he had with everyone around him. And so it begins to change and our, and our desire begins to shift and change. I was thinking about this place in Richmond. How many of you guys have been up to the top of Libby Hill? That's uh, where everyone gets engaged. But that's not the point. <laughs> There's also another thing about that place. I was thinking about Libby Hill this week and, and uh, I was like, man, if I went up there and looked over the city of Richmond, if I were in the right non-anxious presence and experienced the fullness of the Spirit of God, wouldn't my heart be moved, maybe even weep over the city? And when I was thinking about it in that moment, this is actually Monday, uh, it, was, it was a super busy day, and so I was, I was thinking about it, I was like, it wouldn't today. I was, honestly, Monday, it wouldn't. Maybe today it would, I don't know. But on Monday, had I gone up to Libby Hill, I'd probably have been like, it's a great view. And that's maybe it. But I was deeply convicted because I was like, I, I want to be like the people in prison that would sing Amazing Grace with no instruments, with no pomp or circumstance. Or I, I, and... and and feel the words of the, that song because my heart is so in tune with the reality and the truth of Jesus. I, I want to sing songs like Blessed Assurance and stuff like that, but just that my story is linked in with the story of Jesus, but that I want other people's stories to come from death to life and have that kind of compassion urgency all the time, not just sometimes. All the time. My, gosh, I want, I want to walk up to the top of Libby Hill and I want something to to drive inside of me, man, my heart breaks for this city all the time, all the time. The other thing I was thinking about, with this, and this is the last part, is that when we get to this place of compassionate urgency, we're not anxious, but we also want to plant seeds. We want to plant seeds. There's this uh, story um, of this place. That's, this is what it looks like now. It's uh, over in Indonesia. It's called uh, Krakatoa. And in 1883, uh, a big volcanic uh, eruption happened. It's actually five times the force of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, okay? So uh, 36,000 people get killed. It makes uh, tsunamis like hundreds of miles away. Uh, three, uh, people heard the explosion 3,000 miles away from them. And uh, it caused like a global climate like issues, the temperature like fluctuated in big ways and, and it, was, it, it was this unbelievable natural experience. The island itself like went away and um, people everywhere started feeling it. But what was fascinating was about 47 years after the eruption happens, uh, this baby volcano starts to emerge near where the other volcano was. And it starts to like casually erupt. 
But as it begins to erupt, it begins to rebuild the island. And the island starts getting rebuilt. And as it's being rebuilt, these, these birds start coming in and they start dropping things and these seeds. And then the ocean starts you know, moving around it and starts replenishing some of the land. And all of a sudden, things start growing. And animals start happening. And, and now it's like a tourist spot where you can do like incredible snorkeling and it's like this lush island. And I was thinking about, wow, like even in the midst of utter destruction, there's something that can happen when the seeds are planted that, that life can begin to happen again. It's the same thing what God has done in our lives and part of your story and my story is like, man, seeds were planted. Um, none of us came to God on our own. The spirit began to, mo- began to move. We responded to the spirit, but also there were people ahead of you in some capacity doing something that created this lane for you. For, for my story, is it just my parents? No, it's not just my parents. It was my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And th- there's a lineage there of things that start happening. They're planting seeds that began to sprout and later on. Do you remember the, the guy who I said, remember his name? What was his name? Saul. Saul. Now, there's a myth that maybe some of you believe that Saul's name was changed to Paul. That is not true, okay? Uh, he becomes known as Paul. Um, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. All right, so, so he still had the same name the whole time. He just became, named, he became known as Paul uh, later on. He becomes one of the writers of the New Testament, one of the fathers of the faith, and the most incredible missionaries uh, the church has ever seen. Spends years of his life going place to place to place to place to place with this compassionate urgency to share the love of Jesus and wanting to see people come from death to life. But how did it start? It said in that passage, and Laura, you can come up. It said in the passage that as Stephen is getting stoned, people laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul. And Stephen's response at the feet of Saul was to cry. To cry out. Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. I wonder, I wonder how many times Paul revisited that story. I wonder after he had his encounter with Jesus and he came to believe, so he went from killing Christians to becoming its greatest advocate of one. I wonder how many times he sat there, maybe at night, he's like, ah, man, I remember when Stephen cried that out. You know, he, Paul later says this. And actually, if you now go and read the letters of Paul, you'll see how often he talks about tears. And he said this later on. He says, so be under God. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with what? Mm. I wonder how much, how often. He was like, oh, man, that seed <laughs> that Stephen planted in that moment. And that led him to this heart for all these other people and to have like this compassionate urgency. He was filled with grace, Paul was. He was filled with truth and he called people out. But constantly like, man, I was here day and night. There's this urgency because I want you to know the reality and the truth of Jesus. And so I want you to just sit with that for a second. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We're actually going to 
sing a little bit more together. And we're going to sing a couple of things here with no music. We're going to sing Amazing Grace and Blessed Assurance together. Just a cappella because I want us to just feel maybe a little bit and picture what it would have been like around those toilets in a prison in North Korea to sing in that manner. But I also want us to take a minute and think about those that planted seeds. To those that, um, you know, in your own life had just this compassionate urgency for you. Maybe it's to be convicted right now of like knowing, man, you lost that. Or maybe it's not there as much as you want or whatever. But just spend a minute with God here and how he's speaking into your heart.